This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Christine Porath is a visiting faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research focuses on how to help people and communities thrive. Christine is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, McKinsey Quarterly and Washington Post. She has taught in various executive programs at Harvard, Georgetown and the University of Southern California where she was a faculty member at the Marshall School of Business. Christine Porath is the author of Mastering Community and Mastering Civility and the co-author of The Cost of Bad Behaviour. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Joining us today is Christine Porath. She is the author of Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us From Surviving to Thriving. Very welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. I'm going to tell the listeners what I liked about this book. It is laden with evidence-based approaches to improving organizational culture. And as I said, I was looking at my Kindle today. And for every single HR director, chief people officer, L&D practitioner, consultant, this is the book you're looking for. I have highlighted 357 passages of this book. I think that's a good indicator how good this book is. So well done on that, Christine. Thank you so much. And on top of that, there is the creme de la creme of people you've quoted, whether it be people in industry, whether it be people like Susan David, Brené Brown, you've quotes, you know, Tony Schwartz, all the cream of the the crop. Speaking of the cream of the crop, let's talk about you, Christine. Okay, so let's talk about community. So... We were talking just before the podcast of community and how people are really struggling uh, at this time. And some people, because they've so much going on in their lives, there's tensions between office and working from home. And if people just want to get on and do the job and then, and I hope people don't get in their way of doing that. And you have work behavior, misbehavior, should I say, and rudeness, which you've talked about before on LinkedIn. And by the way, our listeners do check out Christine Porat on, on LinkedIn. So tell me this, Christine, why is community so important? Well, I think, unfortunately, because so many people lack it. And it's one of the three most important needs that we have, arguably the most important human need. Uh, people feel physical pain, literally, when we don't have connection. And sadly, all of the data suggests that we were lacking it well before the pandemic. And at least our data shows that it's gone down 37% since then. But just to give you an example of even in the workplace, this has held true. Uh, well before the pandemic, Tony Schwartz and I collected data from over 20,000 people working in all different industries, and 65% of people felt no sense of community at work. And, you know, again, unfortunately, that's one of the main areas where people find connection these days. Like we've lost it in our neighborhoods and our churches and our, you know, local communities in, in great part. And so, the workplace was a natural place for many to find a sense of connection. And there's just a trend that shows that people aren't getting that. And of course, with the pandemic and more hybrid or virtual, uh, people are feeling much more isolated and lonely than ever before. What are the impacts then? Like, why should an organization care about loneliness and those impacts? 
Yeah, well, lonelier workers, and this is others' research, uh, Vivek Murthy talks about it in his great book, Together, but they tend to perform worse. Uh, they are far less satisfied with their jobs. They tend to switch jobs more often, so you see a lot more turnover uh, and less engaged. And so there's a lot of, of course, personal and organizational costs to that. Um, one of the things that Tony and I found in our study was that when people felt a sense of community at work, they were 74% more engaged, 81% more likely to stay with the organization, and reported 83% higher thriving at work. So that sense of feeling like they're moving forward and things like that. And, and we know when people are thriving at work, when we've studied this across like six different organizations, we found that people perform better objectively as rated by managers. Uh, they tend to be 32% more committed, they're 1.3 times less burnt out uh, and report 61% better health. So a lot of outcomes associated with, do I feel a sense of community or connection with people that I work with? So I, I was reading this and I was really taken aback by that, that survey that you did. And it was published in the Harvard Business Review and New York Times and again here, I, I want to quote Brené Brown in your introduction. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irresistible need of all men, women and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically and spiritually wired to love, to be loved and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others and we get sick. That's that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? We have that sense of belonging and, and, and we call it later on that tribe. So so here's the thing is about connection and intimacy. Because there's people listening in and they might be cynical and they might say, oh, this is going to be contrived or this is going to be manufactured. Is this going to be touchy-feely where I have to hug everybody as I go to the office? Like, what what does that look like? small moments uh, that you feel like you matter. Uh, so that could be things like people are asking how you're doing. It could be a smile. It could be, uh, you know, making eye contact, putting your phone away and listening to them. Uh, it, it's really about like I talk about the 10-5 way and how that can make a difference. And that was just a hospital that they what they were looking for is if you're within 10 feet of someone, you make eye contact and smile. If you're within five feet, you say hello. And what they found was a civility spread, patient satisfaction scores rose, as did patient referrals. And so I think it just shows how these little things that in ways that we connect or show that we're human to someone else, they actually lift us in ways that we may not even be conscious of, but we also tend to pass on to others in our workplace, in our, you know, healthcare system. And, and the great news is that others feel that. And so there is this element of this stuff is contagious. And so I think one of the empowering messages that I take away from a lot of this research out there is that it. We, we have control over a lot of this. Like, you know, we may be working in a somewhat toxic culture, but you can make a difference. And it really does start with you. And I think that that's one of the, the nice takeaways is that um, you can change this. And, you know, I, I steal a phrase from my friend Doug Conant, who has a book called Touch Points. But one of the things that he turned around a huge culture at Campbell Soup over this idea of literally just touch points are less than two minutes a piece. You know, I'm engaging with someone, I'm asking how they're doing, I'm showing I care. And it really boils down to not huge investments, but rather these particular moments that we have with people. Uh, and, you know, again, I think it just is demonstrating in any way possible that you care. Like Doug said, you know, if I had to boil your book down to one word, it would be caring, you know, like you just are trying to connect and show that you care. And it doesn't have to be grand gestures or grand investments on the part of companies or leaders. It's those consistent small moments and it's the small things that make a big difference. And I love what you said there. And sometimes this is the last art of just that small, short connection 
the eye contact, as I said, even someone simply asking, how are you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, sadly, I think people aren't doing so well either. And so though it can make an even bigger difference. Like I do think that we're in a period of time right now where this stuff could make a world of difference to people, um, you know, health wise and so forth. So it really does matter and we really can be the difference that we're looking for in others and in our society and so again i like to think of that as a very empowering takeaway that it starts with you it starts now you can start making a difference whether that's you know someone that you're running into going to the bus stop whether that's you know someone that's caring for you um, letting them know how much you appreciate it i mean there are so many people and professions in which people have been so stretched and so you know this idea of just literally making eye contact and saying thank you and things like that i mean one of the bits of research that i did since the book was out was this idea of frontline employees and the idea that they are just really suffering you know harvard wanted me to collect more global data around this. And, uh, you know, it's no surprise that people are angrier, more frustrated, more uncertain. And the number one reason around rudeness or lack of respect and kindness and caring is this idea of people just feel stressed and overwhelmed. And so it's very easy to understand why are we seeing less care and more disrespect is because we're not feeling good. <laughs> So, you know, we're probably not plugged in and really aware necessarily of making the most of these moments. Instead, we may be having our head down and the dread and, you know, feeling bad. Uh, and and that makes it less likely that these are happening in ways that we would benefit from. And in your book, you describe the inner tribe. So. I am from Galway, which is the city of tribes. I'm a proud tribes man, if you want to call it that. And when I was reading this, I really connected with this inner tribe. Can you tell our listeners what it means, inner tribe? What would that mean? Yeah, so inner tribe is just this idea of like within ourselves. And so it's all about, um, again, bringing our best selves to our communities. And so what I was finding with the rudeness research is uh, it may sound very, very basic. I'm always embarrassed when I talk about it, but if we're not taking care of ourselves, it's harder to react well um, to anyone, much less in the face of, you know, disrespect, let's say, or when we're frustrated and stretched. And so I think that's where the physical well-being, the taking care of ourselves recovery-wise, the, you know, getting ourselves in the best mindset possible, all of that contributes to who am I bringing into this brief interaction with someone? What kind of patience do I have when someone doesn't show up in a way with a smile or greeting me or what have you? Like, am I going to embrace who they are, even for a moment, uh, and give them a chance to connect with me or to recover in ways where you know, it can lead to something successful, or am I literally going to, you know, shut them down and um, really make a mess of the situation, perhaps. And that's what I like about this book. You, you have the chapters divided out to, between part one and part two. So part one is unite, uh, unleash, how do we unleash that, the potential of the community? We'll talk about in a few minutes and, and what respect and what that means. And we'll talk about radical candor and providing meaning to people and that boosting that well-being. And that that's where it kind of it slips into that part of it starts at you and that self-awareness and that physical well-being. And I was reading then that the sleep deprivation and the impact on people. Now, if someone who had young children, oh, thank God, they're starting to sleep a bit more. But I have to say, I got a couple of visitors last week with nightmares and that return to deprivation. As I was rereading this book, I was like, oh, I remember what this is like. It's not a good feeling because I'm not a sharp. I probably it's a struggle for me to be patient or kind, even though it's something I'm in abundance with, thank God. However, if somebody wasn't getting a lot of sleep, there's a lot of 
consequences to sleep deprivation, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated by that research. One of the studies that I loved was uh, by Dr. Matthew Walker and a colleague that showed that like an hour less of sleep actually was a social repellent. So they found that it wasn't that the person, they may have been working hard to connect with people and so forth, just tired, uh, but other people could pick up on that. And in fact, they were less likely to want to interact with them. Uh, and unfortunately, they passed that on to others. So you had this whole ripple effect, the social repellent that spread in a team or a community as a result of a person just getting a little less sleep than would be suggested. And of course, we know where we're at with sleep across, you know, not just the U.S., but globally, really. And so you think about, again, it's easy to say, I know it's much harder to prioritize or have the luxury of getting enough sleep, but it just fascinated me how much of a difference it could make. And I, I've held on to that term social repellent because I think that's an excellent way to describe it. And unfortunately, what we see happen. Then we're, we're talking about unlocking potentially and we're going to talk about unleashing in, in in a few minutes here but you speak about and i love that that last dance about the chicago bulls and i i, saw, I was i was watching that as i was reading this book by the way and you talk about the manager jackson and his influence of the lakota tribe and so can you tell me a little bit about that sense of camaraderie there and and what what jackson did sure well as a sports fan i you know love to include these stories, but it just, I had heard Steve Kerr talk about on a podcast of his uh, around this idea of it was the most he's ever felt like a tribe, like plugged in. And he had played for some great teams and everything, but what he described was uh, the idea that Phil Jackson was just brilliant at uniting people. And it all started in what was uh like their film room or video room has, uh, and he had it decorated with tribe-like uh, artifacts, American Indian, because he had taught camps uh, and really embraced that culture, again, because he believed so strongly that we need to get a group to feel like a tribe, you know, and that this was part of it. So they had this room that was adorned with uh, Indian, you know, tribe-like artifacts and it just he was brilliant apparently at bringing people together where they would not discuss the strategies necessarily or offense and defense and kind of what would help a team win necessarily on the court but he really focused on making sure that people were connecting and that people became comfortable sharing and were actually very vulnerable. So Steve Kerr described how every day they would meet in this room and it was not about basketball. And, you know, by the end of the season, they were certainly celebrating each other, as you might expect, but crying in front of each other. And, you know, I mean, it was just an opportunity where they felt like this was a safe space. And of course, this carried over to the court in so many different ways. But they also learned to support one another. You know, Scotty Pippen, who was one of the stars, they talked about he had lost his father during the season and how the team came together in ways that was maybe atypical of an NBA team or their priorities. And it was just kind of a beautiful story, I think, around how he had the players talking and he had them reading books and they would have discussions around ethics and things like that. And, you know, again, this is not something that necessarily they had to do or was very typical in the NBA, but I think it was a matter of he felt like these things were important and the elements of connecting at the personal level would translate uh, to a very team-like environment. And one of the beautiful things, uh, it was that role players, so like they talked about John Sally was 12th man on the team. And he said, you know, I felt like I was absolutely a part of the team. Everyone was equal kind of thing. And this was, of course, as you mentioned, when Michael Jordan, uh, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, 
was, you know, used to star power and maybe preferential treatment and everything, but he really got them all to feel similar, like they belong, they mattered. And I think one of the ways that we could argue that this showed up was when Steve Kerr or others were called upon, they delivered because I think they felt like they were confident. Uh, they didn't feel like a second class citizen or third class citizen or the 12th person on the team. They felt like I belong here, you know, and this is my time and I want to succeed for myself and for them. And they tended yeah. to do it. And I was listening into that and it, the kernel to that is is really trust and vulnerability. That plays a huge part of you showing up to be your true self. And we'll talk about Herb Keller in, in, in Southwest Airlines in, in, in a few minutes. But it is about that, isn't it? Um, it's that role of vulnerability when we're communicating with people that we show up. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've really experienced this. I mentioned that I was working with the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill a women's soccer team over the last, this is my third season with them. And I have been, have gotten to see how this works, like even through the book club. So preseason, this coach has them read. Uh, he actually runs five book clubs. So they all have one for their year. There's a leadership council. Then there's a book that they're reading on race. And it's really about like the discussions are, what do you take away from this and how do you apply it to your life? But all the players are getting a chance to speak up about this. And then he's sharing experiences from his past. They're sharing experiences that they've run into. And it, so preseason, the trust is building in a way that it can't really be replicated by just on the field. And so I've seen it's a it's a really beautiful thing where, you know, people are connecting strongly Uh in outside the box ways maybe, but that idea of trust is what Anson talks about is crucial. Cause he says, I can't coach them if they don't trust me. And it, I hear that from leaders as well. Like trust is at the core. So I've got to find ways to show up as a human being, to let them know I care about them as a person. If I want to have them follow me or just be able to coach them in ways that they hear me ideally they're influenced by you and they follow you and, and that's going to move us on to, to two pieces here because this book i have to say that we're already talking about the first couple of chapters here now so remember listeners there are there are uh, nine different ones to go here so we're going to talk about the the people deal manifesto this is from cisco so uh, I, I'm not going to pronounce the second name here uh, properly, maybe. It, the, the chief people officer of Cisco is Fran Katsudas. Is, mm -hmm. is that right? I so, think so. So the People Deal Manifesto, what, what was that? So that was all about how Cisco cared about the people and how they were prioritizing the people. And one of the things I loved about that is it came before we've seen maybe a lot of other places do this. Like they were very forward thinking about an intentional, I would say, about caring about people and also prioritizing the whole person. Like, you know, some of the things that I talk about with Cisco is the CEO, Chuck Robbins and Fran, they both were focused on mental health before the pandemic and all of this, right? So when we saw un unfortunate uh, incidents of suicide out there, they were having discussions and saying, if this is happening to others out there, particularly celebrities and so forth, what is the likelihood that some of our 80,000 people are suffering in these ways and, you know, maybe having these thoughts. Uh, and so I love the way that they were stepping up proactively. And again, also getting people to share their stories in ways that I think opened things up and created a sense of vulnerability, a safe place for people to share themselves. And they've been ranked the best place to work, I think, at least three out of the last four years. So it's it's helping them in different ways, I think, and showing up in ways that matter to organizations. But in their case, I think most importantly, as far as the people go. And this is where 
if people are listening in large organizations, a sense of community can be created. You can move from surviving to thriving or move from toxic with all these small behaviors. So uh, one way of doing that, and I, I often work with high performance teams and organizations, is this whole aspect of work that shared accountability. It's a, it's a two-way street that, and it's that conscious culture you, t- uh, you talk about in the book. So so what does that look like? So we have trust, we have vulnerability, but then we need to hold people to account, to share the accountability. How does, how does that look like? In Yeah, I think it's tough to achieve. So it's easy for me to talk about. I think part of it is uh, you come up with norms that are accepted. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, people are part of the process of coming up with who we want to be and and kind of developing those norms together. But I think the idea is you're willing to call each other out when people are not meeting those norms. So the best example that comes to mind for me was there was a small government organization that adopted standards of civility and they had 10 of them and they did an excellent job. Everyone was trained. Uh, they had them, you know, on posters and uh, all over the place on their back of their name badges. But by the last time I had come in for a training, one of the gentlemen just said like, oh, yeah, we just call each other out. We say five, dude, five or seven, man, seven. And so the idea was not that they were necessarily writing each other up about drastic actions, but they were in the moment catching people and saying, step it up or not okay. And it's the same way. You know, I know we're both um, sports fans and there was an university that I was with where we had a yellow card, red card, hand signals. And the yellow card, it was very effective for most people. I mean, some people got red carded, but it was rare. And and they actually, you know, kind of shut up for the the time uh, where this was encouraged Uh, because we had some anger management issues. So this was our way of kind of dealing with this when outsiders came in and presented, which was ripe for tearing people down if, or things de-escalating in ways that we were not putting our best foot forward. And so I think that you can be creative about like, how are you going to share accountability for this? But I think having shared norms or agreeing on who we want to be is really helpful. Uh, And then it requires something that most of us find very uncomfortable, which is the, and then this is where radical candor gets in. If I care about you as a person, hopefully you're framing it as I want better for you and for us, you know, so this is just a part of helping you and us get to our highest potential. And speaking of Kim Scott and radical candor, then there was something that she did in Google, which was the Oopsie Daisy. So you were talking about red cards and yellow cards there. So so tell us about Oopsie Daisy. I think this is brilliant. Yeah. So Kim actually brought in, it was a stuffed daisy. And the idea was, you know, kind of who screwed up most that week. It was like a whoopsie daisy kind of vulnerability sharing, you know, where they fell short or where they failed. And it was almost a contest, like, because the person that messed up the most actually got the daisy, you know, for the week. And I thought it was just a really cool way. I mean, she has a lot of brilliant stuff packed into her book, Radical Candor, but of, you know, making this acceptable and opening the door to like, what's happening? And how do we know what not to do even, or how to improve? But I think one of the things that is hard to coach, even though it's of crucial importance, is this idea of psychological safety. Mm. And I think what she was really also doing is adding an element of this is a really safe place. Like we're all admitting our failures and everything's on the table. And now we're not afraid to speak up or share issues or tackle things that are really tough because where we know that we can relate to others where, you know, things may have not gone the best. And then 
this is where you know there's loads of advice here in in the book you know love and load surveys things that don't work for us all this and then we have sarah blakely the owner of spanx where she introduced oops meetings um and these were meetings were to become a safe intimate forum where people learn from each other and bond as a community over their blunders so i'm reading directly from the book which are often told as funny stories that everyone can laugh at but they have a serious purpose and she says, if you can create a culture where your employees are not terrified to fail or make a mistake, then they're going to be highly productive and more innovative. So that's really the kernel of what it is, isn't it? It's if they're learning moments that's done in a psychologically safe place. Absolutely. And in so many industries, you also don't want people covering things up. You know, that's when you might run into safety issues, for example, or patient issues in healthcare. And so it's really key that people, regardless of their status and power in the organization, feel compelled to speak up or um, open to share. You know, I think this is where things are potentially going wrong uh, versus letting things slide all downhill or, you know, someone that would suffer a much greater consequence or the organization suffering a lawsuit or something like that, where it could have been nipped in the bud, but people didn't feel safe speaking up or pointing out, is this an issue? Because it looks like it might be an issue or it might cause concern. And I think I think that's that's something that I was trying to go work my head around is if you're in a highly regulated environment, you know, some people might say, oh, that's grand for creative cultures or something like that. It's probably the same to say is that you probably saving someone's life if you are in like med tech or farm or something like that. Uh, it could be doing that. And then in your book, then we let's go back to tribes, then is at times of great adversity can be real community builders. So uniting even previously divided tribes and communities. So it's not a, a lovely thing to think about that to say, if we're all in this together, if we have, is it, I'm going to put my words on this. Is it that we have a siege mentality that it's, 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 we're getting, we're in this together. And that creates that sense of harmony and trust and that cement that really uh, bonds us together. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. And I love that idea of a tribe-like environment. Uh, and, you know, it's something that uh, my brother Mike has taught me a lot about as well. Just the idea of uh, it's really important, especially in the case of when you're suffering or when you're feeling isolated and alone as we started our conversation. Like that makes all the difference that you have people that have your back and that you can turn to for support, uh, ideally for understanding and hope and things like that as well. Yeah. And and the listeners may not know about your, your brother's Mike's work. So that's the mighty, which as you know, I've uh, I've used um, there and it's really it's a it's an online support forum, isn't it? For many different ways. And the mighty just helps people out in, in many different ways. Do you want to speak about that? Give a shout out to Mike, if that's OK. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I really learned about community and its potential from Mike and the mighty. Uh, he and my sister in law had a really devastating day in 2008 where they had gotten terrible news about um, Sarah's unborn child uh, that, you know, had was missing a kidney and possibly other organs. And then ultimately they got home and they found out that their two-year-old was struggling with a very rare disease, a chromosome disorder that they didn't know kind of the likelihood of her path, but the doctor warned them that her mind would probably not develop beyond that of a five-year-old child. And it was a really challenging time. And of course they were seeking information. There wasn't much out there. And so Mike actually stumbled upon a PDF file from parents, six of them that shared stories about how they were coping with challenges from their children. And in those stories that there was a 
certainly a lot of pain and suffering, but they were beautiful. And, you know, these people expressed joy and hope in different ways and uh, humor even. And so Mike figured like, if they can do it, so can Sarah and I. And that impetus and then a subsequent parenting challenge with Annabelle, where he got really great advice from a woman around the world on how to help Annabelle with the pincher grasp and how to eat uh, with a very novel suggestion about cutting a sock like a, for, a hole in their forefinger and thumb and putting food in the tray and not letting her cheat with her other hand and so it was one of those things where he said I'm learning that family and friends are great but you really need lived experiences and and then ultimately what he learned with after starting the mighty which is this safe space for people coping with any challenges, disabilities, diseases, disorders, was he thought he was solving for health challenges. And it wasn't until a few years later that he really realized that he was actually solving for isolation and loneliness. And so I think that that's something that I hear about from friends and others that I meet and that use the Mighty is you know, yes, I mean, there can certainly be helpful information in the way of health and, and so forth. But I think it's feeling like uh, there's a shared support system there or people that others can relate to. And so it's that sense of belonging community. And they found that in studies trying to help people like intervene with suicide ideation and, and other things that a sense of optimism and social connection from the community is actually what apparently is making a difference. And that made a real difference to me, especially. So thanks to, to Mike and the mighty about that. Now I'm going to move on here to the whole aspect of unleashing. How do we, how do we transform our communities by unleashing the potential? So I'm going to start off with this quote from Dan Pink. Control leads to compliance autonomy leads to purpose. So Christine Poratz, I'm going to let you take it on from there. If we are unleashing potential, how do we unleash potential, especially if I'm fearful as a leader to, to control everything? Yeah, I think one word that comes to mind for me is choice. You're giving people choice. Uh, and I think that translates well now to whether that's choice around where we do our work or when we do our work or a little bit around how we do our work, but you're really providing or empowering people to make some decisions about how they want to lead themselves. Uh, now, that isn't necessarily easy for leaders. Uh, it requires a certain amount of trust, but hopefully you're providing that for people because as Dan writes about so beautifully in Drive, it makes a huge difference to how motivated people are uh, and ultimately I think how hard they work. And so it's a matter of, you know, providing people with enough discretion really to go about their business in ways that they're going to deliver uh, in ways that they wouldn't if they were treated like a robot or something like that. So I'm going to quote from Joe McCannion of the Billions Institute. So it's okay if I, if I, Quote from the book again. Go on, says you. I sure why wouldn't I? Says I. Okay. Unleashing requires shifting from asking, how can I get all these people to do what I want? To how can I help all these people do what they want to do? Once you make that mindset shift, you've set the stage for how this wonderful unleashing can happen. That's so brilliant. It is it's brilliant. That empowerment it principle. Yeah. yeah, they did such a brilliant job with it. Uh, it it's part of their effort to house 100,000 people. I mean, it was really wonderful how they brought this. And in their case, they did it with cities that were involved in this. And so one of the other things that Joe taught me, a way to think about this is he, he talks about it, it's like a turkey sandwich. And so your job as a leader is to, you know, define what like if there's bread uh, and there's meat, but then it's up to you 
anything else is fair game. So if there are certain elements for, let's say, safety purposes or for standards that you have to get right for whatever reason, uh, then that's fine. Make that clear. That becomes the bread and or the meat, depending on the sandwich. But otherwise, you're letting one person may want, he talks about lettuce, tomatoes, pickles, onions. Another person may choose avocado and something else. And so the point is that you're clear about what needs to be there and then and then you let them run and and that makes a big difference to people. Yeah, so you give them kind of guardrails, loose structure. Here's at the outputs that we want a sandwich or a turkey sandwich in the case, how you get there, how you put it into it, it's up it's up to you, isn't it? Which is yeah. great. And and Herb Keller did this as well with um Southwest uh, Airlines. Um and again there's a wonderful story uh, where he talks about where a pilot intervened when there was a, a man showed up distressed with their dog. Can you tell us that story? So that's, I think that's a real story of empowerment. Um, yeah, so this was a pilot that saw that there was a gentleman that was at the ticket, you know, um, counter and it, he looked distressed. So he was getting news that he couldn't fly with his beloved dog unless he paid for a carrier and that kind of thing. And the pilot, I think, gathered that maybe the financial stress was causing him to be uncomfortable around this. And the guy looked a little bit nervous anyway. And so the pilot stepped up and immediately took care of it for this gentleman. And uh, what happened was that it was the case that a family wrote to Southwest afterwards, the family of this guy flying and said, thank you so much because this was his only possession, real possession. He was homeless. Uh, we hadn't seen him for at least a couple of years and he wouldn't have come without the dog. So we would have not had the chance to reconnect and uh, reignited a relationship with him if the pilot hadn't taken it upon himself to notice, like to be aware, uh, to be very mindful of and kind and caring to then step up and take care of this for him. And uh, so I just thought it was one of several beautiful stories around Southwest Airlines employees that were taking initiative because this was just the way that they are unleashed and that they know that they can be those kind of people and that Southwest would be not only okay with it, but really proud of them for being those kind of people. I am hearing financial directors throwing down their pens and rolling up their eyes, kind of going, there is no way you can run an operation like that. Um, so so obviously there's guardrails in place. The higher for the right attitude. Remember, this pilot took upon themselves to pay for that. So this person made that judgment call and I'm sure they were rewarded in kind. But I think this, this, there's a bit of guidelines there. Like it isn't a free for all in Southwestern. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have your guardrails and then they simply want you to do the right thing. Um, I heard a lot of stories and I had uh, professional students in the MBA programs at the time when 9-11 happened. And, you know, I heard stories uh, around just the idea that employees at Southwest took it upon themselves to take care of passengers, like use personal credit cards, you know, made sure that they were housed and or they bought pizzas for people and you know just went out of their way to make sure that they were okay during this you know scary time and I mean you know Southwest not only backed them and reimbursed them but I think was also proud and nowadays we know that these kind of issues can make or break a company because of they go viral social media wise and and so i do think that we're living in a time where like you don't want to be the company that doesn't take care of a customer or patient you do want to be the type of community where you're known for people are compassionate and kind and you know it costs us a little bit okay, well, we're more than going to make up for that for the people that we're attracting and sustaining 
because we are this type of employer or people. And I think that's an aspect that has just struck me in organizations that we probably don't value enough is goodwill because it's so hard to measure sometimes. When you talk about all those little moments that creates that social fabric and sometimes it could be someone that doesn't have a whole lot of authority, could be the strongest person there that has the glue together of the organization. I'm thinking people who might be a facilities manager or they could be a front of house reception cleaner. It could be even these people that don't have roles of authority, yet these are the people then that actually inject that goodwill or that sense of community, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think the frontline employees is are so important across different industries, for example. And even though they may not have like traditional power or prestige associated with that, they can make or break uh, experiences that make all the difference. And one of the things that we found is, sadly, when, let's say, customers are rude to an employee, we feel for that employee and we want to help them and so forth, but we actually punish the organization. And it doesn't seem fair because it wasn't even like their own employee was rude to another employee. It was a customer. But the idea being that we want people protected from these moments and this level of disrespect. And so organizations, I think, and leaders really not need to be thoughtful about how are they protecting their people and making people feel like they are empowered to react and respond to situations, good and bad, you know, that they may need to tackle throughout the day. So that, to me, is the spirit of being unleashed, as you started with. And we we talk about the the recipes there with the turkey sandwich, so I'm going to use that uh, and segue into the work of Bhutani of GoDaddy. And that the recipe uh, they have for unleashing them is for their their successful recipes. This is one is believe in the person, two is give the person opportunity, and if he or she f- fails, forgive. You can coach the person. So it's it's they make the point that is how can you bring out the best in people if you don't believe in them? You need to bet that they're good. So there is a huge element here where we have to coach, we have to train, we actually have to manage people. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, one of the surprises and some of the research we've done is how much people want and expect training, you know, even around like these moments of respect, you know, 25% of people blame employers for being rude, you know, for a lack of training. And so I do think this idea of providing training formally or just informally, like presenting those guardrails to people is very important. And once you give them those guardrails, I think, you know, Oman Bhutani is one of these people that just says, like, you need to believe in your people then and trust them. And if they fail, catch them once and coach them on it. And again, the guardrails are there for what are we risking here? It's not necessarily millions of dollars or tens of millions, but it's, you know, more manageable than that. Um, and he talks about this brilliant idea of just, just like, letting the leash go little by little if you need to. So I love that too, because it may be that you're not comfortable just saying run free, you're, you know, no leash, right? But it's a matter of, okay, like initially we're all kind of on leashes to make sure that we're trained or, you know, not going to take off and run miles away into traffic. Rather, it's little by little you're gaining trust and so you're letting go of the leash more and more and i think that that seems to me to be a very practical way to think about this and speaking of practical ways to think about this we have people listening in here now and they might be in a toxic workplace so if we change the focus to that so there's a guy you quote in the book, uh, is it Andres Traeger? And mm-hmm. he, he talks about you can fix strategy and operations, but the only way to fix culture is to start over. So tell me a little bit more about that work of Traeger, fixing over, fixing toxic cultures. 
So I love that story because it's the most dramatic reboot story I've ever run across. So Jeremy Andrus effectively after driving up to a company that he bought into, so he was part owner of and CEO, it had felt very toxic. Uh, He mentioned that the primary owner, uh, whenever he'd call, he'd feel pit in his stomach. Like it did not feel good. And it even got to the point of whenever he, Jeremy drove up to headquarters, it even felt, he felt a little sick. And he thought, if I'm the CEO and I feel this way, what do others feel like? Uh, And this is a problem. But there was one particular day where he drove up and he saw that there was an 18 wheel rig truck burning to the ground, literally. And so there are police trucks and fire trucks and all of that right there in the parking lot. And he said he knew pretty quickly it was arson. And it was the first day he felt physically unsafe at work. And for some time he had been trying to change the culture and had done a number of things, including bringing in leaders he thought would be helpful that he had worked with in the past and nothing was working. Uh, And so it was on that day that he decided he had to do something drastic and he effectively hit reboot in my mind and he moved the headquarters and they did a test with employees around cultural fit and they only invited, I think like 15 or so, I think fewer went with them to Utah from Oregon. And he started over and uh, he built the headquarters literally around ideas of connecting so that, for example, they they cook together uh, five days a week, breakfast on Monday where they have a meeting together and then lunch all the other days. And, and we know what that does for community, but he just, the biggest data point to highlight is that they went from 70 million in revenue and they had sat there for years and years, I think 26 years, uh, they had built it up to 70 million. And over the course of seven years, he took it to over 750 million in revenue. And so it was more than a 10 X return based on the culture. And the quote he gave me was just unbelievable in my mind in the sense of saying what you read and saying that, you know, it was all about the people and the culture. And in fact, it was the same wood pellet grill and we were marketing it the same way. It literally was the culture. And so um, I just thought it was a great story around that. And again, the audit that they, they did was they assessed each of the remaining 90 employees on both competency and cultural fit. People were graded as positive culture leaders, neutral or cultural detractors. So uh, again, there I think what they were making the point was toxicity is like a virus, so to make sure that anyone they brought in wouldn't infect that office. So again, isn't that fascinating? Where that toxicity is like a virus. Yes, it is so true. The idea of, unfortunately, toxicity is a virus. And I think the good news and what the Jeremy Andrus example at Traeger shows is that not only is it like the negativity can flow and infect people, but the good news is that civility and respect is contagious as well. And so that's something that can spread. And I think he he illustrated how that worked at Traeger. So uh, I, again, I think it, it comes back to these small moments. And so if you focus on the positive and you get some of these benefits going, it can really uh, spread very quickly in a positive direction as it did, as it did at Traeger. But in as what you mentioned is that the rudeness and negativity is unfortunately, it spreads. And that's true of, you know, the workplace. It's true of our local communities. It's true of um, online. It, unfortunately, it's everywhere. And one of the things that the research has taught me over the last couple of decades is that, it rudeness affects or disrespect affects our emotions, our motivation, our performance, and how we treat others. So it really does color how we're showing up, even if we don't want it to. Even if we say, like, I'm going to try to let that roll off. <laughs> no, chances are it may affect our mood, and or we may just be a little less patient or things like that. 
And so sadly, you know, it, it is like wildfire or like a virus that can yeah. spread very quickly. It rubs off and it taints, as you, as you were saying, and that's where it leaves the workplace community feeling isolated, alone, betrayed, belittled. Um, and then you talk about the mathematical model developed by Yale. So this is by the psychologist uh, Adam Baer and his partner, David Rand. Um, and they talk about if people are being selfish at work. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think the idea there is that when we're surrounded by people that are more takers in Adam Grant's language, you know, you're less of a giver, you're more of a taker or even a matcher, we become like that, even though we may not want to be that way. Uh, and so literally we're conforming to our environment in ways where, and we find this in our own research, like when there's disrespect, people are trying to protect themselves. And so they're three times less likely to help anyone. And I don't think that's intentional. I think it's just, you may be distracted. You may be thinking, what is this going to do to me? You know, how do I need to think about uh, protecting myself or others? And so unfortunately, what they found is that people become less giving and uh, in ways that may even hurt themselves. So but that's just uh, becomes the default, really. So speaking of Adam Grant, I saw his cameo appearance last night in Billions. And speaking speaking of Billions, then look at this for a segue. The Society for Resource Management estimates turnover costs at three and a half thousand per employee. So when there's turnover, it, it costs organizations 30 to 50 percent of uh, employees annual salaries. And there's a measurable results sometimes what the impacts on organizations with turnover. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, turnover is so incredibly costly. So this was research that's actually quite dated now, but from Society for Human um, Resource Management. And the idea being that to replace someone, it costs multiple times typically their salary. And so the higher that you go up in an organization, the more costly it is to replace them. And, uh, you know, a part of that is it could be their salary. A part of it could be time and energy lost. Uh, a part of it could be recruiting and selection costs. But it's incredibly costly and it pulls people off track as well. And so it's something that, you know, you want to avoid, especially in today's day and age where there's we've seen this great resignation and we've seen quiet quitting and things like that. And so what we know is that this is very costly for organizations and talent is hard to come by and it's hard to keep, but we need to keep that in mind. So if we were to, to keep talent and we were to do that through performance management, then uh, how do we how do we praise behaviors or reinforce behaviors through a performance management system, for example? Uh, I think part of it, it's less the formal mechanisms. I mean, performance management is really tricky and hard and we don't do it well. And a lot mm -hmm. of great organizations have scrapped their systems Uh so I think, you know, if I were to give advice, I'd say build the trust and make small moments matter. And, you know, recognition and appreciation goes a long way. I mean, one of the ways that Doug Conant helped to transform Campbell's at the time was he wrote 30,000 thank you notes while CEO. And it's not to suggest that thank you notes will do the trick, but it's it's elements like that like you're trying to build a culture where thanking people becomes a part of uh, coaching people really like what do I want from them and if if that's the case then I need to encourage and reinforce that and I think you know providing specifics is a great way to do that and leaders one powerful way to do it is also through stories uh, like if you want to transform a culture stories are really powerful and I've seen CEOs you know, be vulnerable and share maybe where they messed up or yeah. what they want people in terms of being unleashed, you know, to ever to always be able to get up and leave a situation where they were being disrespected. And and that's powerful. So uh, performance management is tough to get right. But if we maybe boil it down to smaller things that we can control on a even a daily basis, I think that can be helpful 
and uh, moving us forward. And tell me a little bit, and we're going to come to the end of the, the podcast shortly. So I just want to ask you two questions. So one is, is going back to your brother, Mike, and the magic mm-hmm. effect. And then I want to talk about the four-step cycle to civility. Okay. So the magic effect, what is that? Yeah, he talked about the mighty magic. And it's really that people want to go above and beyond the call of duty. You know, that people are uh, so excited and feel a sense of meaning and they want to deliver, uh, maybe for themselves, maybe for others. But it's this idea of going above and beyond. So in the academic world, like we used to call it organizational citizenship behaviors. Um, Mike's much better at this stuff. So he, you know, termed it the mighty magic. And I just, I love that because I think that that's what you want. And the beautiful thing about that kind of thing, and I see this happen all the time in teams and organizations and sports teams too, is you see one person do something and you think, wow, that was really cool or that was really great. And so you step up and either do the same thing, like you're role modeling, um, they are a role model and you're modeling from them. Or, uh, but that that happens all the time. And so the mighty magic is just this idea of going above and beyond because they feel like they're a potential difference maker. And is that where, I suppose, you engineer adversity tolerance into it? Remember we are talking about being in this together then is, is that if I do the self-care, if I have that self-awareness, I'm doing the physical recovery, I have the right mindset then that we can engineer that adversity Diversity tolerance into and then I'm thinking of a small organization that's going to mushroom in size you know is, is that what they mean by that that adversary to, adversity tolerance yeah I think it's a matter of being comfortable with the uncomfortable uh, if if possible and it's not easy but if you can think about how you can overcome something and you know one of the things that i learned from i like the term is like the miserable middle um and the idea of like riding that out together uh that's another way to look at getting through any kind of challenge but i think of like organizational change which is so tough and so many groups go through that and so if you can kind of power yourselves through this miserable middle, uh, that's a big way. But the adversity tolerance, I think, is just a matter of feeling like uh, I'm able to get through this one step at a time. And maybe that's also where the neutral mindset comes in, which is like you just control what you can control and you you break it into bite-sized pieces. And so in the sports world, it's like that next play. It's forgetting about the past or maybe the grand challenge that confronts us, you know, we're down by 21. Okay. What can we do in this next play to just start chipping away at it, you know, to get a goal or to get a touchdown or to get whatever the case may be to create some momentum that we can turn things around. And, and then as a leader, part of what you're doing is celebrating those small wins to create more momentum and more excitement and inject that can-do spirit such that you just you gain momentum and and can tackle bigger things that may otherwise feel impossible at the time so i'm gonna circle around back to to your work and the the four-step cycle to civility so the four steps seems that seems kind of achievable if i'm listening in here so could you tell me about the four steps of civility? If I'm in a workplace and we need more civil behaviors in that respect, how might I approach that? Yeah, so the four steps really just map on to like the employment life cycle. And so you could, the idea is that you can start anywhere and starting somewhere is better than nowhere. And so it's, you know, you will achieve more and get there quicker if there's kind of a thread throughout, but it starts really with recruiting and selecting. And I would say that is the biggest uh, influence. So if you had to pick one, I think that matters the most. Um, And so then it gets into coaching. So that's like setting norms and expectations and the guardrails, presenting guardrails and things like that. And then scoring it. So ideally, that would be I'm reinforcing things or I'm, you know, kind of providing some more 
information for people about are they winning by doing this or not. And then the last element is practice. And so that's a bit of accountability, like you're, you're providing the feedback necessarily and, and then making adjustments when necessary, particularly if people don't come around. But uh, I have found that like those four areas and, you know, some include more elements than most like coaching, I think really includes a few different things, but uh, that those are the main ways that I've found that you can influence change in a culture. Uh, and I tend to use it around trying to create a more positive or civil culture or correct, let's say a more toxic culture. Christine Poritz, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. We, we, we're a long time trying to schedule this, so thank you very much. To our listeners, we were discussing mastering community, the surprising ways coming together moves us from surviving to thriving. We also mentioned the, the mighty with Mike Poritz and your sister-in-law there as well. And if listeners were to get in contact with you, Christine, to find more about your book and what you do, how might they do so? Yeah, probably the best place is the website. So it's just christineforath.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter for FC and I'm on LinkedIn and I try to post there occasionally. <laughs> and so those are probably where I'm at. Uh, and then, you know, can email me about follow up as well. And that's all connected to the website. Christine, thank you again for joining the show. It was great. Sure. Thank you for having me and thanks for doing such a thorough read and uh, having such thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. It is my genuine pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.